Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. All right, Matthew chapter 5. and We're in a series we're calling The Laws of Discipleship as we look into the Beatitudes. And I trust that you were blessed last week as we looked into the word blessed in Matthew chapter 5. Let's go back and review just a bit. It says in verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Remember last week we brought about the fact that whenever Jesus spoke, the people were so interested in what was going on. Here we have a time of him instructing his disciples. And in the people that are listening, they come to hear what's going on. It's kind of like church should be every Sunday. As we are equipped in the Word to do the work of the ministry, I believe that attracts the people of the world. They want to come and hear what God has to say to us. And in those multitudes were always those who were just curious. They came because they had seen Him do a miracle or heard about Him. And then some of them had come and they had learned a lot, but they were not committed. And as soon as He turned His back, they would crucify Him. But then there was that group of disciples, Mathetes, those who were changed and by the doctrine of another. They allowed His teaching not just to enter their minds, but to enter their hearts. And God had done a work in their life. And so we see Him instructing His disciples. It says in verse 2, And He opened His mouth and taught them, saying... That verb there is in the imperfect. And what it's inferring is He had been teaching them this all along, over and over and over and over again. And you wonder, how many times had He come to share these same things to these disciples? Then in verse 3, He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, or of heaven, excuse me. And you know, in Luke 6, it says the kingdom of God. And we saw last week, He's talking about the same thing as we looked at another cross-reference in Matthew. But I want you to know, remember, and renew just for a moment, the word blessed, remember what we saw that it meant? It didn't mean superficial happiness. It was not dependent on any external of life. It was something that was so inward that was complete and untouchable by the world. It meant to be indwelt by the nature of God. The Greeks would use this word to describe their gods. But not only this, it meant it was a word used to describe the dead. And it was as if a person had left the sorrow and the misery of this world and had entered the sphere of blessedness. And yet this is tagged to those who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We are absolutely given the nature of God and can be satisfied in the peace that that brings regardless of the turmoil that goes around us in life. Then we saw that the poor in spirit, the word poor there, is not the word which says you're down on your luck and you're down and out, but you can still help yourself. This word poor is the word used for being absolutely helpless as if you were a paralytic lying on the bed and, and could do nothing for yourself. And it describes the kind of poverty. It's a spiritual poverty. Poor in spirit. Who are the ones who are indwelt by the nature of God? It's those who have come to recognize they can do nothing within themselves spiritually and God must invade and come into their life. That's what the law was given for, was to expose man in this position so that man knew that he couldn't help himself. God had to deliver him and redeem him and save him. Well, we saw in the last part of For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom is the territory where a king reigns. And King Jesus has entered into our life. And when we allow Him through the obedience of our life to invade and to move and to rule our life, we walk in power and we walk in victory and we walk in authority. Well, that's verse 1. Law number 1. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the totally helpless. 
the bankrupt spiritually, who have come to lean upon the Lord Jesus Christ in their life. Now watch. In law number two, it says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so today we want to look at that verse. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does that mean? Wayne, it sounds rather morbid to me. Do you mean I have to walk around with a, my lips stuck out and be sad all the time? What does this verse mean? Well, when we have the nature of God, we begin to love the things God loves and we begin to hate the things that God hates. Keep that in mind as we begin to unveil what this scripture has to say to us this morning. Three things I want you to see. First of all, an explanation of the mourning ones or sorrowing ones. Now, if we read this in the literal Greek text, it would be blessed the mourning ones, blessed the sorrowing ones. There's no verb there. It's understood. And you have to be careful to note that because some people believe it's not until they go out and commit an act of mourning or whatever that they're blessed. No, the blessed ones, the ones who are doing the mourning, it's a lifestyle. It's something that is a part of the nature of God working in their life. And there's something else we need to know before we dive into this verse. And that is a definite article is used in this verse. Now, you might not be familiar with the definite article in Greek. It's one of the most important rules of grammar when you interpret God's Word that we could possibly come about. You see, when the definite article is used, he's speaking of a specific group, a particular group. The article identifies. Without the article, it's qualified. It qualifies. And you see, here it's qualified. I mean, it's identified. It's saying it's a specific group that are the mourning ones. You see, the world is in tribulation. Jesus said that. In the world you shall have tribulation. Everybody has sorrow. Does that mean that everybody is going to be blessed? Oh, no. That's not what the verse said. Only a specific group are the ones who we see that are mourning and sorrowing. And these are the ones who have the nature of God. Who are they? They are the blessed. And you know, sometimes you can read this verse and think that if you mourn, you'll be blessed. But I believe it's the other way around. Once you have been given the nature of God, the mourning is a result of that blessedness. For that nature of God is so coming into our life and so united itself to us that we now mourn or sorrow because of it. The word mourning or sorrowing is a present participle, which means it's a constant durative action in a person's life. It's his lifestyle. And it's very important to recognize this. So mourning is the result of being blessed. Well, now, if you're saved this morning, you're blessed. You have the nature of God. Do you mourn? Well, Wayne, I'm still not real sure what you're saying. Sounds kind of morbid again to me. What does it mean? Why do they mourn? Now, I think a key here is in verse 11. It says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. And what's the last three words? For my sake. If you make the mistake of just using those three words for that one verse, I believe you've missed the whole translation of what this is supposed to be speaking to your heart. For if you read it again, Blessed the mourning ones for my sake. Then it begins to make sense what he's speaking of. He's speaking of a specific kind of sorrow. One that is on the sake or the, on the account of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. He's speaking then of a spiritual condition. Now let's put all this together. See if we can't make something out of it. He's not speaking of people who sorrow for their own sake. All right. Back in the days that this was written, there were a group of people, as I understand, called the Anchorites. And these were people who would go around with heavy weights around their necks so they'd be bowed over. 
And they would live in cages and they would afflict their bodies and they were bringing sorrow upon themselves so somehow they could be blessed. You see, that's the fallacy. You're not, you're not blessed because, and sorrowing for your own sake. This sorrow is for the sake of Christ. And just because you sorrow doesn't mean that this qualification is met in your life. Now let's go one step further. You see, when a person is blessed, he has the nature of God. And here's where I want to go with it. <laughs> it takes a while to get into this thing for me and draw a picture. Now I'm, I'm going. All right, hang on. He, get, he has the nature of God. Now the nature of God is the heart of God. Once my nature and God's nature are joined together, it begins, I begin to have the heart of God throbbing inside of me, beating inside of me. And something changes inside of me. All of a sudden, I love the things God loves. I hate the things God hates. I'm grieved over those things that grieve the Lord. And as a result of that, this is the sorrow he's speaking of. His heart, his nature in me, grieving over sin in this world. For it's only sin that grieves the heart of God. And it has a twofold effect immediately in my life. These are laws now of discipleship. Once you've come to see yourself helpless, spiritually helpless, and you've in invited Jesus into your life, you're now blessed. And the kingdom is set up in your life. It's a spiritual kingdom. And as it's set up in your life, and as you're obedient to His Word, then His nature begins to work in you. And you don't understand the compassion you begin to have for others and the hatred you begin to have for sin. It has a double effect. Number one, it's a personal effect. It has a straight-out personal effect. And what is that personal effect? It causes a person to turn away from sin in his own life. Now, this is important, folks. And God was laying out the laws of discipleship. This is law number two. You must turn away from sin, but you will turn away from sin because my nature is in you and you will grieve over the things that I grieve about. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I believe it says it in a very clear way. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. And, and Paul is saying something here that it is, is helping us bring about the point of, that God's making in Beatitudes. Look here in verse 9. It says, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed, look, to repentance, a turning away, a change of mind. Watch. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner. Notice. Notice that kind of sorrow. What kind of sorrow is it? It's a godly sorrow. And, and that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But now watch. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Now, something very important here. When the sorrow of God gets in us for the things that He's grieved over, which is sin, then we have to notice that it's not about the consequence of sin, it's about the sin itself. You see, the sorrow of the world only sorrows at the consequences of sin. But you see, the godly man sorrows over the sin itself. The bitterness, the gall of sin itself hurts the heart of God. And His heart is now ours. And so it hurts ours. And we sorrow because of sin and what it's done and what it's doing. Steve and I were coming off Lookout Mountain the other night and uh, we'd been up to speak. I'd spoken at Covenant College and we went to a McDonald's right there at the foot of, of Lookout Mountain. And I want you to know, I don't know why it always happens to me, but this fellow that was really 
living in the consequence of sin, let's put it that way, came over to our booth. And uh, he sat out and he said, fellas, I need a dollar and 73 cents. And he had it itemized as to what he was going to buy with that dollar and 73 cents. He was going to go to Crystal and he told us exactly what he was going to buy. He was so drunk that he didn't know where he was. And he took his socks and shoes off and showed us the chain marks of where he'd been in prison. And uh, he said he was in prison the first time for, for uh, stealing the battery out of his wife's car. He said he was in prison the second time for moonshining. The third time he stole his brother's car and he was put in prison. And he kept on and kept on. At first it was kind of humorous, but then I began to feel the hurt within this man. And my heart began to go out for him. This man was very sorry for his life. Did you know that? He said, I know that you two are Christians. We hadn't said anything about Christ yet. We hadn't had an opportunity to speak. He said, I know that you're Christians. I can tell by looking at your face. And he said, oh, I love Jesus. He said, oh, I'm so sorry for the sins in my life. Folks, do you realize that's worldly sorrow and worldly sorrow only bringeth death? You know what he was saying? I hate the consequence of the sin in my life. That is not what he's speaking of in Matthew 5. If you only hate the consequence, it simply means that as soon as the consequence is lifted, you'll go right back and sin again. Pharaoh said unto Moses, he said, Moses, I have sinned against God. And he lifted the consequence of the plague. And the verse, a few verses later says, Then, when he saw that it had lifted, he hardened his heart and he sinned even more. You see, that guilt because you've been trapped, that, that sorrow because the consequence is difficult. Perhaps you've been involved in immorality or, or something's happened in your life and you live with the scars of the consequence of that sin. Now look, that's not the sorrow he's talking about. That's part of it. It's involved. He's talking about the sorrow for the sin itself. He's looking at sin as God looks at sin and it breaks his heart. His heart is disturbed and he grieves. He's a mourning one. Blessed the sorrowing one. Those who hate sin in this world. See? Not the consequence of it, for everybody hates that. The pagan man hates that. But the sin of this world, the sin itself, and that godly sorrow will cause you and I as a believer to turn away from it. Because the nature of God is grieved, we are grieved, and we turn away from it. Blessed the sorrowing one. It has a personal effect. But it also has a people effect, if you'll excuse my outline. <laughs> you know, if you ever wonder why you can't get people to go and witness and, and do those things, and I know that many of you have experienced frustration in trying to get people to do that. I taught a course one year called Reproductive Evangelism. Boy, it was exciting. For three months, we taught them how to walk up to the door, how to step back if it was a lady, how to walk over in front of the television set, turn it off, take the dog in the other room, change diapers on the baby, get a glass of water in the kitchen, everything you can think of, learn to plan a salvation. And for three months, we had the best time in the world practicing, 30 of us. We sent them out. You know how many went? Zero. But I thought they didn't know how to witness no, that's not the problem. You see, until we're obedient to the Word of God, which looses the Spirit of God in our life, and the nature of God captivates our nature, then we'll be compassionate, for then we will sorrow over sin. But the person who's not living obedient to God has none of this in his life. He's broken fellowship in his life. He's not a sorrowing one. He doesn't grieve over sin. And he's not interested in those who are living under the influence of that sin, you see. So it has a people effect. Now, when the Greeks would talk about a mourning one, automatically a picture would be drawn in their minds of a person in black, a person who's come to mourn the death of another. And the inward feeling was manifested outwardly by the tears that they would shed and by the black that they would wear. And so when he's speaking of blessed are the mourning ones, he's not talking about the secret places 
of your life. He's talking about you mourn and the world sees that you mourn. Not that you mourn that the world can see, but you mourn and the world sees. There's a difference there. You see, the Pharisee does it so the world can see. But it's obvious that you care about other people. It is a manifestation of that mourning that is seen by other people around you. And the only word I know that would help us understand that is just the word tears. The word tears. And I want to ask you a question this morning, and it came to me as I was studying last night. I wonder how many times we've wept over the sin of this world. Oh, Wayne, man, I, I care. Do you care? Has it ever been manifested in our life that we sorrow with God's heart over sin in this world? Do we care enough about it that we've turned away from it? We're no longer living in that immorality or whatever that is. You see, the drunkard comes to me and says, Oh, I love Jesus and I'm sorry for my sin. No, sir, until he turns from that. He has not sorrowed and God will not bless him as we're talking of blessing. You must turn and that's the nature of God within us. The heartbeat of God grieving over the sin of the world and tears is the manifestation of the Christian who cares about others. Let me show you some verses if you'll kind of hold Matthew 5. Let's look first of all in Jeremiah, the ninth chapter in the first verse. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1. I've been so privileged to be with Dr. Zodiades in these studies. God has just opened my heart. I believe if we understood the Beatitudes, there'd be a revolution in this church. It would absolutely turn Chattanooga inside out. If we understood the laws of discipleship and would obey the conditions that God has laid down. Chapter 9 of Jeremiah, verse 1. Listen, listen to the heartbeat of this man. Listen. It says, Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. You think he cared? You think compassion was moving over him? Certainly that was the heart of God manifesting itself in Jeremiah. Look in Psalms 119. Psalms 119 and verse 136. And by the way, if you've never studied 119, Psalm 119, I encourage you, oh my goodness, what's in Psalm 119 about the Word of God. Psalm 119 in verse 136. Notice what it says here. Psalm 119, 136, it says, Rivers of waters run down my eyes because they keep not thy law. Whose law? Not mine. They're God's law. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes. Now tomorrow, don't miss part two of this great teaching on verse-by-verse Bible study with Dr. Wayne Barber. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.